You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee. My name is Randy Bolander, and I'm glad to have you with me today. You know, I've been thinking, uh, it's been a while since we've explained the name, the Third Cup of Coffee. Maybe you have joined us since then. Uh, This is where we get the idea. First cup of coffee, that's just survival. The second cup is when you're racing around getting the kids to school. But that third cup of coffee is for you. That is where the genius hits. I don't think anybody has ever had much of a good idea until they've had at least three cups of coffee. So hopefully, this podcast is the third cup of coffee for you. Today, we have audio from Sunday's message at the bridge, where we dove into a series we're calling Letters. It is Revelation 1, 2, and 3. And I know, and I know, and I know that there are a ton of people going, does this stuff even relevant? This is far more relevant than you can imagine. And as things unfold over the next few years, I think you'll realize that, wow, this has a massive place in my life. So here we go from the bridge, part one of our series, Letters. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Revelation chapter 1 and just leave it open. Just stay there. We're going to be through that chapter and in other places, but we will always go back to that. We abbreviated worship just a little bit this morning because I want to turn the whole thing back into prayer and worship again at the end uh, and probably teach a little bit of an abbreviated session. I say that in faith, but I I really am going to try. Because... The word should elicit a response. Sometimes we are so tight in our scheduling and we cram everything in that we we, we preach and we go, okay, this is where we're going. Bless you. And we send everybody out the door. And I think there's sometimes we need to have just a bit of a time to soak and respond. We want to do that this morning. Diving into a new series called The Letters, Revelation 1, 2, and 3. And uh, be mostly in all, really, in chapter 1 this morning. As I was preparing for this this week, I remembered a season back in 1999, 2000 maybe, back when the internet was like a a rarity, okay? It was still kind of like, how does this thing work? And uh, Rick Warren from Saddleback Church in uh, Orange County, California, started something called pastors.com, which was a gathering place for pastors online. And it worked wonderfully. Pastors from across the nation all got on these chat boards and got to connected. And it worked great until about 100 atheists invaded the whole thing and ruined the whole thing. It's like, this is why we can't have nice things. No, really, they did. They all infiltrated it and the whole thing fell apart. But about 15 of us who had connected from across the nation uh, formed this little private board And uh, we started to converse. And the 15 of us represented, I don't know, eight or nine denominations from all across. And we were all completely different. And it was so fun and so rich. And some of those people are still some of my dearest friends in ministry. Some of them I talk to on a weekly basis that pastor in completely different contexts around the United States. But while we were doing that, it was a closed system because when it was wide open, it became the Wild West and you had people jumping in. But periodically, one of us would recommend somebody else to join the group. And so I recommended uh, my friend Charles Yushenko would join this group, and they, they let him in. Charles pastored a little church in Kalispell, Montana, called Believers United Frontier Fellowship, Buff Church. And he had a brother in Myrtle Beach, Calif- Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, that had a church called Beach United Frontier Fellowship, and they did that so they could both be Buff Church and use the same logo. 
And he was just strange. He had weird opinions about everything. And he would argue about little things. And, and he was just really, really quirky. He was always pulling scripture out of context. Now, it should be admitted now that Charles was completely a figment of my imagination. I completely made him up. He wasn't a real character. Nobody in the group knew that. And he would interact with people and talk. I'm still talking about him like he was a completely different person. But it was so funny to me how these pastors would interact with this guy who was not real, and nobody ever complained about him, no matter how weird he got. They were kind to him, even as they were all emailing one another and emailing me going, who let this guy in the group? He's a complete nut. It wasn't his weird church name, and it wasn't his weird opinions that got him in trouble. It was this. It was his multi-level marketing scheme for selling large wall-size end times charts. When I announced that he was selling, and again, this guy's not real, but when I announced that he was selling these charts, that was the, the last straw, and the pastors on the group were like, now they're emailing things like, we got to kick him out. Like, we, can't, we, can, we can deal with all the weirdness, but he's got to go. And I laughed because they could put up with a lot, but they really didn't want to talk eschatology with this nut. They did not want to talk about the end times. What I learned about them later was they really didn't want to talk about the end times at all. That really wasn't anything that they wanted to breach. And that's not just among pastors. It's really among the body of Christ as a whole. And it's led us to be fairly uninformed about the days to come and even unable to interpret the days that we live in. Now, from our inception, from our very beginning, and really, friends, we are at the very beginning. Okay, this is, this is not the bridge. This is the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. But from our very beginning, we have always been about what I've called an eye to the future, looking to see what is coming. It means looking to see what the Lord says, looking to see what the times are saying, what is going on in current events, so that we are not surprised or dismayed or offended or too attached to our hamster cage when God shakes it. The church has got to respond differently to crisis in days to come, or we are no different than those around us. We can't afford to live and develop as a spiritual family. Okay, oh, this is the bridge. This is, guys, this is not a corporation. This is not a business. This is a, we're, a, we're building a family. We can't respond as a spiritual family without a Holy Spirit-led understanding of the Scripture and of the days that we're living in. Otherwise, we will respond just like the lost. John 16, 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Having an eye to the future or understanding means we gain a prophetic voice that speaks of the best that is yet to come and speaks with authority on the world that we live in. If we don't know where we are going, we surrender the ability to comment on where we are. The church, in many cases, has no authority to speak on the days of the, of the events of the day because the church has no hope for tomorrow. The Bible says, no, you've got hope and you're going somewhere. And if you're going somewhere and you know where you're going, you've got authority to speak on where you are right now. With that in mind, we start this new series called The Letters, focusing on these first three chapters of Revelation. Now, about this book, four times in the Gospel of John, one specific disciple is referred to as 
the disciple who Jesus loved. Over and over again, the disciple who Jesus loved. Now, even if you flunked vacation Bible school, you know that Jesus loves everybody, right? I mean, even, even the heathen know that. Jesus loves everybody. But what about this one that he loves more than everybody? Like, how does this work? John 20, 21, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Well, I thought Jesus loved everybody. Well, he does, but apparently he's got a certain fondness for, for this disciple. Now, here's the fun part. Who was being described as the disciple Jesus loved? John, John the Beloved. Who wrote the book of John? John. John came up with that idea. Maybe not the idea, but certainly was the first one who wrote it down. He's describing, okay, it's Peter, James, and the disciple who Jesus loved. Declared himself to be that. It's a little bit like when the writers of Numbers tells you that Moses is the most humble man who ever lived. Written by Moses. It's quirky, isn't it? But John gives himself this nickname, and it was one that fit, the disciple that Jesus loved. Later, church fathers would reformat the name, and they would call him John the Beloved. Not many people get a nickname after they die, but John did. He was called John the Beloved. That didn't happen until after he passed away. Now, later in life, probably in his 90s, John the Beloved was exiled to the Isle of Patmos by the emperor Domitian. Domitian was ruling out anybody who caused trouble in his kingdom. Dream in my heart be to be causing trouble in my 90s. Like, I, I love this. He's 90 years old and he's a threat to the state. Domitian was ruling out anybody who was an astrologist or who was, uh, I was going to say a musician, a magician. Maybe, maybe musicians, little troublemakers too. But they, the chances are, we don't know exactly, but the chances are they were mistaking the gift of prophecy in John's life for witchcraft. And they said, you're out. At 90 years old, they send him to this island. Like John, we are coming into a season where a prophetic church will be at dramatic odds with earthly authority. Like that's where this is going. I'm not looking for controversy. I can just read my Bible and look at the news. And when individuals in a governmental system become so drunk on control that they don't care about what the truth is, they don't care about your prophetic words either. The governmental systems that will punish truth speakers without regard to what the truth is are the sorts of systems that banish people. Now remember, we're talking 90 AD, but it actually sounds a little familiar. John got canceled. They couldn't bear him. They said, you can't say those things. Go to the Isle of Patmos. And on the Isle of Patmos, this little rocky outcropping off the coast, John earns his second nickname, which he was not actually given until about 1850. And then it wasn't even used that much until Blind Willie Johnson, a blues singer, sang a song called John the Revelator. John the Beloved becomes John the Revelator. On this windswept rocky island, John has this profound encounter, and he saw a vivid picture of the days to come. Didn't understand it all. 
You can tell by the way it's written. There are times he's like, I'm just writing what I see, but I don't, I don't totally get it. Much of the book is revelatory regarding the days leading up to, during, and after the return of Jesus. And it is drilled into John that this book is deeply important for the church. This is written decades after most of the New Testament. And he understands how important it is. Revelation 1.3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who, are, who hear, who keep what is written, for the time is near. John writes, this is such a big deal. Just reading this brings you a blessing. Now, immediately the critics arise and they said, oh, he says... For the time is near. How can you say the time is near? It was 2,000 years ago. What was, was John like? Was he losing? He was in his 90s. How could that be near? The word near, particularly in the Bible, has several different understandings. Here, the word in the Greek is egis. Okay? Egis. It's used 12 times in the book of Revelation, which is where we get the phrase, a dozen egis. That's not even true. I don't know how many times. Thank you. I, all right. Good night, folks. No. Egis, what it means, it can carry the idea of the nearness of time or a sequence of events. We say, isn't that the same team? Not necessarily. He could say for the time, when he says Egis, it's either nearness of time or the next event. What he is saying is the time is next. This is the age we're living in. This is the age that is coming. It's like Peter preaching on Pentecost, and he says it's the last days. That was 2,000 years ago. Was that the last days? He's talking about a sequence of events of what is to come. I might tell my kids, the next thing we're going to do is eat dinner, or the next thing we're going to do is go on vacation. If it's 6 o'clock at night on a Thursday, they know we're not going on vacation that night. They know the next thing. They mean, it means sequence. Okay, okay, we're going we're gonna, to, the next big thing on the horizon. He is saying the next, these are the things that will come after the age that you are in. But before he receives the specifics of the return of Jesus, John the Revelator is given seven letters. That strike you as odd. Like he's getting ready now to get the download of what the end of the age is going to be like. And then they press pause on that and there are seven letters they're written. John is told you're going to receive information that will guide the, guide the global church through the biggest upheaval it's ever seen, the most glorious, the scariest, the most wonderful season it's ever known. Think like Book of Acts miracles, Book of Acts persecution, Book of Faces communication. It's Facebook. Think, okay, think about in the New Testament, had there been instant communication. The gospel spread all across the known world in their generation. What would have happened if they wouldn't have had to physically go to the... See, it's going to be how tumultuous it is. Big change and instant communication everywhere, both positive and negative. And with that sort of communication and that being ready to be delivered to John, the Lord tells, takes a detour for the first three chapters says, by the way, I've got some letters I need you to deliver. Letters? I was working on this this morning. I was remembered growing up, I grew up in this, this little town in North Dakota that we did not have a stoplight. We had a blinking red light. And it was kind of the honor system. You know, it's like, stop if you feel like it. And I remember as a kid, little, little kid, uh, my mom's not here, is she? Oh, she, okay. I don't know if you remember this, you can verify it or not. The, the, the local priest's name was Father Carl. 
And Father Carl had some kind of feud with the local post office. I don't remember what the deal was. But do you remember this, though? He would stand out at that intersection with his mail and, and wave down total strangers to give them the mail to drive it 20 miles to the next town to mail it because he didn't trust the local post office. And, and this is like a three times a, a week thing. You know, what's going on out there? Oh, Father Carl's delivering letters. Well, here the Lord says, before I tell you what's coming, I need you to take these letters. I need you to deliver these letters. They were written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, described, uh, describing the state of the church at time. Now, there, there are more than seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, and what he is talking about here is not local congregations. Okay, This is a congregation. We call it a church. It's a congregation. When, when the Lord looks down at the city of Kansas City, he sees the church of Kansas City. He sees the believers in a city. And so he writes to believers in seven different cities that reflect the standing or the situation of the church really as a whole. And it legitimately touches all of those congregations. To find our future as the bridge, we've got to examine these seven letters. To understand where we're going and adjustments that we need to make. When I say we, there's only a few of us here, okay? That means this is us. These are adjustments that we need to make to prepare for what comes in Revelation 4, 5, and on. It is the grace of God that he puts these letters in the front end. Revelation 3.22, near the end of these letters, he makes the comment, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember that word hear also often can be used as obey. He who has an ear to obey, let him obey. So knowing that the political and social climate that these letters were delivered in were kind of similar to what we live in, and he speaks freely of the days to come. Here we are 2,000 years later, closer to the next, and in order to find our future and the path to get there, we've got to find ourselves in these seven letters. These are not about other people. They were, but they're also about us. John wasn't given this task just to carry the mail. He was given this task so that the church through history would read these letters. Church as we know it is less reflective of the early church than we wish it was. And it's understandable why. It is because generally we have built the church based on the pattern that was handed to us rather than on the pattern that we find in Scripture. It's just the way it works. I heard a guy speaking a couple weeks ago about wanting to help a carpenter who was working on his, on his if, if you work in the trades, what is the biggest nightmare as a homeowner who wants to help, right? But he said, no, no, I, I want to help you. And the guy said, well, that stack of two by fours are eight footers and they need to be six footers in the morning. And the guy said, I'll do my best. So that night, he got out the skill saw and he took that first two by four and he cut it six feet. He was so proud. Then he laid it aside and he took the other two by four and he lined it up to that six foot two by four and he cut it. Laid the first one aside, took the second one, took the third one by the second one. He kept patterning the two by four based on the one that was cut immediately previous. Not considering the sixteenth of an inch of the saw blade. And that after he had cut sixteen two by fours, he was an inch off the original pattern. We have done our best, but we have largely built church based on the church that we saw as kids. We've taken the good, we've rejected the bad, we've done a little, but like every generation, we lose a sixteenth of an inch. 
and we're just not close. We're doing our best with what we were given, but we're not building according to the original pattern. The modern expression of the church has largely been built off a pattern of the previous generation rather than the original design. So we take a flawed experience that we had, we add flawed expectations, we have people looking for church that aren't sure what they're looking for, and when they find it, they're, they're say, well, that's not it. The church that Jesus described and commissioned had more power, more authority, and more effectiveness than we are seeing in our day. I'm saying I want to go back to the original pattern. Like, I really want the original thing. And some people go, well, we're never going to have the original thing. I mean, we're flawed human beings. Have you read the Bible? You understand who we built this thing on? He actually said in Matthew 16, 18, I'll tell you, Peter, parentheses, who denied me three times, I'll tell you, Peter, on this rock, there's a pun for his name, God loves puns. Rock met Petra. He says, on this rock, Peter, on you I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So it's not our lack of authority or our imperfection that's stopping us. What's wrong? It's largely because we are building something that he did not have in mind when he said, on this rock I will build my church. Even with COVID and starting over, and the idea that God is shaking the hamster cage of the church without a rigorous examination of who we are according to these letters, I promise you, we will build the same thing we've always known. We'll just do it. It's the path of least resistance. And then we'll be surprised that we got the same results. We grew up with a widget, and now we built another widget, and it does what the first widget did. We've got to set our hearts and our hands towards what he had in mind when he said, I will build my church. So to find our future, we have to find ourselves in the early church, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The next few weeks, we're going to examine and investigate these letters that he wrote with, through John's hand, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This week is just the prelude to those letters, okay? We don't understand the encounter that John is having. We don't understand the impact of the letters. So two realms come together here in Revelation chapter 1. John really is on the Isle of Patmos. He really is standing there. He's in exile, physically there. But he is also in this ethereal setting in the realm of Jesus' presence. And it's at the same time. It starts this way, Revelation 1, 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, and even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. When we hear the word revelation, most of us lean back because of all the baggage of all, you know, some of us were scared to death by revelation teachers as kids. This is really simplified. The word revelation means uncovering, revealing. This is the revealing of the understanding of who Jesus is. Something is about to be made obvious and public. One of my many quirks is every time I drive by a car that is sitting in a driveway with a cover on it, I wonder what it is. I look at it. I try and guess. Sometimes it's real obvious. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you see a little bit of the wheel. You, can, you know, I'm always curious. I just want to stop, yank the cover off. What do you got underneath there? I'm always wondering what's under a car cover. This is what the book of Revelation peels back and uncovers. It reveals Jesus as the full and final judge of the earth. 
That's what the book of Revelation reveals. It's found in other places in Scripture. It's not an entirely new idea, but it is one that we have not really embraced. We like Jesus as teacher. We like Jesus as example. We like Jesus on the cross. We like Jesus out of the empty tomb. But Jesus as judge, we don't think that much about it, but it's in the Bible. John 5, 25 and 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself. Jesus is completely self-contained. He, he, he's a source of life. And it says in verse 27, I'm sorry, it's 20, yeah, 27. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He has agency or authority or the right to judge the entire earth in part because he is the son of man and he walked the earth with the same trials and foibles that you face. If he were only God, if that's even a thing, it would be one thing, but he says, no, I put him in the body of a human being to suffer and to die and to go through difficulty and now nobody can say, you don't know what it's like. Nobody can reject him as judge because he has walked in the skin like we walk in. Jesus as judge of the earth is not an entirely new idea. Peter said in Acts 10, 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Some people may not like it. There's a lot of things I don't like, but I can't change him. Jesus is the judge of the earth. Even so, if you're going to face judgment, you could do no better than standing before Jesus as judge. But because before the end of the age and before your final trial, Jesus facilitates this little pre-trial hearing. It's called your life. And in your life, you come to an understanding with how he is going to judge you. Like you actually are able to weigh in on that. And he weighs in on it, and he chastises you, and he corrects you, and how you respond makes a difference at that final moment of judgment. Hebrews 12, 6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. What is that chastisement? It is your pre-trial hearing. It is, okay, before we come to the final sentencing, why don't you come to the bench? Let me talk to you for a minute. This is what's going to eat your lunch at the end of the age. You think you could fix that by then? I think I can work on that. Okay, that's your pretrial hearing. I won't ask you. But if you've ever been to court, it's a little scary. It's a little weird. Even if what is going on in the court is not about you. Because it is so other than what you see watching Law and Order that it's very unnerving. I went to a, to a sentencing trial about two years ago, or sentencing hearing for a young guy, and I'm sitting there, and I realize my heart is racing, and I'm nervous. I didn't even do anything. Judge doesn't know my name, but it feels a little, little scary. If someone is our final judge, the kindest thing they could do is to tell us how it's going to go down. If you knew you were going to trial, wouldn't it be good to know what the judge is thinking? Because if I know now, I can make a course correction before I go before the bench. And he, in his graciousness, allows us to make a course correction. You understand what a course correction is? You're going one way and you decide you've got to go another. I was reading about this great product. This could only have been made in Canada. It was, uh, 
because it's resourceful. It was, it was a predecessor to what we know now as ATVs or four-wheelers, but it had six wheels, three wheels on each side. It looked like a fiberglass bathtub uh, with a bit of a covering, and the only way they could drive the wheels on the right and on the left side with the guy sitting between them was to have two engines. So it had a lawnmower engine in the front, lawnmower engine in the back, one, one set of mower engine ran one side of the wheels, one engine ran the other set of wheels, and you, none of the wheels turned. So the only way to steer the thing was to, with like levers, like with a tank, and unless it was going exactly where you wanted it to go, this thing was a nightmare to drive. It was, it was called the Jigger. That was the, like the product name. A lot of research went into that, I'm sure, because it was the best way to describe how to drive it. You just kind of jigged it back and forth to get it to hopefully end up where... It's like, I live life like that. I'm like constantly making course corrections, but it's the graciousness of God that he shows us what those corrections are supposed to be. These letters in Revelation are our course corrections. You better go left a little bit. You better go right a little bit, because when you get to the end of the line, you want to be lined up with him. The church in America is in a season of course correction. And I honestly believe it is the gracious gift of God before we come face to face with the judge. That he says, wait a minute, what do you really want to build here? Revelation 1, 4 and 5. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of kings on earth. So he starts addressing this book to the seven churches of Asia, and, and it's almost as if he says, if I tell you about these seven, you will figure out where you fit in here. And God sends greetings on behalf of himself, the seven spirits that are before the throne. There's some debate about this theologically, if those seven spirits represent the Holy Spirit and his seven manifestations, or if they're angels. Uh, my, my way of applying uh, discernment is this, is does it matter? And what about the stuff I do understand? Okay, there are things in this book that are hard to, hard to, to uh, sort out. Don't get so stuck on what you don't understand from the book of Revelation that you ignore what you do understand. There's enough concrete information in these chapters that we have plenty to do. And Jesus tells people, you know, nobody knows the day or the hour, but he does give indications of his return. And goes so far to say in the book of Luke, in uh, chapter 21, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He says, you're not going to know everything, but you can have some sense of what's going on. Don't get so caught up by what you don't know. People who don't want to talk about the end of the age, that's their number one argument. There's so much we don't know. That's true of everything. Really. You ever watch traffic like from the air or from a high building? You look down and you realize that traffic working is based on every one of those people doing the right thing. You're like, I never want to drive in traffic. But I mean, there's so much you don't know, but you still go out and drive. Okay, you do what you know, and you just set what you don't know aside. That's what we need to do with the end times. In this greeting in Revelation 1, Jesus is described three ways. He is described as a faithful witness. What is a witness? It is one who has seen it all and will tell the truth about it. Jesus speaks the truth to people about his Father. He speaks the truth to the Father about people. 
He testifies of the power and the goodness of God to all of us. And then at the point of the cross, Jesus testifies to God about his own executioner's weakness when he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. When we talk about trust, there are varieties of level of trust, right? There are people that I would trust with, for directions to get somewhere. There are other people I would trust with my car. They're not always the same people. There are people that I would trust with my life. And there are some that you would trust with your life that you wouldn't trust with your car. There has never been a man so sold out to the truth that he could be trusted in every situation by every human being at all times than Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus said about himself, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He is underscoring here, I am a faithful witness, and I have seen everything that has happened. It is so true that he can be called truth himself. The book emphasizes his trustworthiness because the days are coming that are going to demand that we trust him at a level that we have not trusted him in the past. Not just hold him at a distance, but to shut off the TV, close the laptop, put the phone in the drawer, and say, the information I'm getting from you, Jesus, that's the truth. He's a faithful witness. It goes on to describe him as firstborn of the dead. Now, that's not the first time that this has been alluded to either. Paul used it when the Holy Spirit inspired him to write Corinthians 40 years earlier. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, who belong to Christ. The fact that 40 years later, through another vessel, the Holy Spirit is again, again using the same idea that he is the first fruits or the firstborn of the dead says this is a significant idea. Some people read this and they go, well, wait a minute. Yeah, he died and he came back, but what about Lazarus? Lazarus was dead a couple of days and he came back. But then he died again. Lazarus has got a stay of execution. Okay, he died of something. Jesus is the only man who's ever died, came back, and never died again. People say, what about Enoch? Well, Enoch walked with God, and we're not really sure how, but he went up. But nobody in history has ever died, risen from the dead, and stayed alive. These are dramatic happenings in these other stories, but they're not beating death. He is the first fruit, but he is not the last fruit. Friend, let me tell you something. You're, you can beat death. You can endure it and still beat it. And he is the first of all history who did that. So he is the uh, faithful witness. He is the first fruits, meaning there's more fruit to come. And he finally, he is the ruler of kings of the earth. Keep in mind, this is written by the Holy Spirit, but also by the hand of a man who is in exile in his 90s because he was causing trouble in another arena. I can almost see John writing, okay, a faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. I, you know, I think he wrote it a little bigger. Domitian, are you reading this? Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Because humanity is corrupt, leadership tends to reflect that over time. 
It's not to say there are never any good or godly leaders. They are. But by and large, when given a significant amount of power, most of humanity leans towards corruption. Righteous and godly leaders are the exception. You know, it's, it's kind of like there are albino deer, but when you say, I saw a deer, you, you kind of think a brown one, right? And when you think of human leaders, you think of frailty, and you think of mistakes they've made or just flat-out sins they've done. And he says, Jesus is the ruler over all of them. And J John sets the stage for the drama where one day everyone will realize that this Jesus is who John said he was, ruler of kings of the earth. Psalm 22:28 says, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over nations. We have so bifurcated the idea of the life that we live in in the age to come that we think that there's nothing that carries over. But there is actually a continuity of life from this age and the age to come. Jesus rules the earth for a thousand years. We'll get into all this at some point. Some of you are going, I don't know about this. Trust me, we'll get there. But in that season, there are nations on the earth. And Jesus is the ruler of those nations. One day, every governmental group will dip their flag to King Jesus. NATO, the United Nations, the network of communist countries, the United States. Every country one day, willingly or otherwise, will bow a knee to King Jesus. Even Switzerland will take a side. It's like, y'all can't keep neutral and storing up the money for the, all eternity. Every nation will bow before Jesus. If the kings of the earth will one day bow, think of the advantage we have of bowing today. Think, think of how that sets us up for success to face the judge. Revelation 1, 5 to 8, it continues. To him who loves us and freed us from our sin by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and the Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. That may be the most powerful prayer in this passage. In spite of everything that's coming. Even so. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. In these four verses, he stresses the eternality of God and of Jesus. He says, to him be glory and dominion forever. And he describes God as the one who is and who was and is to come. That phrase matches the phrase in Revelation 4 where the four living creatures and the 24 elders that are around the throne in God's very presence over and over say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. John's not just speaking of the physical, historical Jesus or the Jesus at work in our lives. He's speaking of the Jesus who will return dramatically to the earth. Verse 7 should send shivers down our spine and put a fire in our gut all at the same time. It's the realization that the future, a future that many of us will likely see, will be awesome and frightful and worth it. 
That verse says, behold, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. How do you respond to this idea that all of humanity will be able to see Jesus? And he goes out of his way to say that even those who have pierced him, those who have crucified him in the physical or in their hearts, will see him and they will wail. There's this vein of thought called postmillennialism that says that Jesus will return after the church perfects society enough that the earth is worthy of his return. That's not going so well. I mean, just, you know, by, by, if I look around, I would think it's actually further away than it was. It's like we're, we're, we're not redeeming the earth to make it good enough for him to come back and buy a condo. That's, that's not happening. It says the tribes of the earth will wail. There will be great elation among some, but also great confusion and pain when the judge comes to the earth. That is the great and terrible day of the Lord that is described in the Bible. And John, the response to this, even so, amen. As hard as it's going to be, as glorious as it's going to be, as difficult, even so, amen. I want to ask if the worship team would come back. Jesus is indicating here the, what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks of obedience. What is going to be required of us at the end is to be able to look at what he is doing on the earth and say, even so, amen. The phrase is used elsewhere. Revelation 16, 7. Voices come from under the altar. Who's under the altar? Martyrs. It says in other places, those that are under the altar are covered by the altar of God, the very presence of God, are those that have given their lives for the gospel down through history. So here under the altar are the souls of the martyrs who have seen everything and paid this incredible price to be faithful to Jesus. And from under the altar, there's a voice. It says, and I heard another, another voice out of the altar say even so Lord God Almighty true and righteous are your judgments those that have paid the highest price look at it and go it was worth everything it was worth everything if you could see what they see right now you could say Lord life is hard right now my family is struggling I don't know what's going on I've lost my job it's crazy even so even so, it's going to be worth it. And I know that because those who have paid every price, are the voices are coming up out of the altar, even so. You can hear them. They're muffled by history, but they're yelling, even so. This morning, we've padded the service just a little bit with time because I want to take a moment to add our even so. Before, in the next couple weeks, we dive into these letters, we start making adjustments in our own lives. Maybe even how we orchestrate and do church. But before we get into making those course corrections, I want to make sure that we are saying as a people, even so. Even so. This is how we're going to do this. I want to ask you for a moment just to close your eyes. I want you to unlock your holy imagination for a moment. 
Some of you have never thought about this, but imagine for a moment you are there around the throne. You're like, that's kind of odd. Trust me, nothing you imagine is going to be greater than what it is. You don't have the capacity to imagine it, but you do what you can. You see a sea of glass. You see 24 elders on thrones and you hear their voices echo. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Join your voice to theirs just for a minute. Holy, 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 say it with me, is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Say it again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And under the altar we hear the voices of the martyrs saying, Even so, even so, come quickly. Worthy are your judgments, O Lord. And we're having this encounter like John has before the throne and we hear the words that John wrote as he finishes the chapter. I, John, your brother and your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the isle called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one stood like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like the flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, and he said, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Whatever you are imagining right now, it is better, it is more glorious, and it is coming for you. And he is looking for you in the midst of trial and tragedy and difficulty and pain to say, even so.
Even so, Jesus, even so, we want you more than anything. Let's just stand for a moment and go into worship. Keep that picture in front of you. Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Open my eyes. Spirit of revelation. Show us who you are, God. Keep that picture in front of you. I want to see you rightly, Jesus. Keep that picture in front of you. Sing it to him, Spirit of Revelation. Spirit of Revelation, open my heart again. Open our hearts to who you are, Jesus. To a picture of the King. Respond to him this morning. I know that your eyes are like flames of fire. I know that your hair is white as wool. And I know that your voice sounds like waters. Jesus, you're beautiful. Oh, I know that your eyes are like flames of fire. And I know that your hair is white as wool. And I know that your voice sounds like waters. Jesus, you're beautiful. Oh, I know that your eyes are like flames of fire. We know that your hair is white as wool. And I know that your voice sounds like waters. Jesus, you're beautiful. We know that your eyes are like flames of fire. And I know that your hair is white as wool. And I know that your voice is Sounds like waters, Jesus, you're beautiful. Oh, and there is none like you, Lord. Oh, Jesus, you're beautiful. Standing before you. He is beautiful. He is stunning. Jesus, you are beautiful. We stand before you. We say, You are beautiful, Jesus. Jesus, you're beautiful. Jesus, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. 
You are beautiful, Jesus. Beautiful, you're beautiful. You are beautiful. You're beautiful, you're beautiful. There is none like you. You're beautiful, you're beautiful. Who was and is and is to come. Beautiful, you're beautiful. You are worthy of it all, Jesus. You're beautiful, you're beautiful. You are worthy of our praise, Jesus. You're beautiful, you're beautiful. You are worthy of our time, Jesus. Even so, Jesus, come quickly. There is none like you, God. There is none like you. Jesus, you're beautiful. Oh, and there is none like you, Lord. Oh, Jesus, you're beautiful. And there is none like you. Your beauty, just tell him that there is none like you, Lord Jesus. Your so, Father, we come to you as a church family and we say collectively, You are beautiful. We say collectively, You are worthy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we join our voices with those who know better than we do, who have given their lives for the gospel over 2,000 years. We join our voice with that sound that comes from under the altar. We say, even so, come what may, come judge and ruler of the earth and have your way in our lives just want to pray for a moment many of you are you wrestling with things and life is legitimately hard right now let me encourage you the prayer of even so lord it is worth it all is one that will sustain you as you get a glimpse of jesus standing there with eyes like fire and hair like wool we begin to pray what the martyrs have prayed. Come quickly. Father, I pray a blessing over this church family. I pray that we would stand in strength no matter what comes. As we commit our hearts, Lord, to pattern our church family after what you promised and what you said you would build. And God, to all of the things that we think that we need to have, or that we think that culture says the church is, we say goodbye. But we say yes to all that you want to make us. Even so, Lord. Even so. Even so. Lord God Almighty, True and righteous are your judgments. Father, I thank you for your presence in this place, God. And we ask that you would speak to this church family these next couple of weeks as we unfold these stories. Let us find ourselves in the New Testament church 
and make the course corrections so that we can be a New Testament church. In Jesus' name.